external group, Blackholders Matters, New Georgia Project, Verify Others, have been applying pressure to corporations in Georgia, asking them to stand up and speak out against the Republicans' voter suppression bill that was passed and signed into law by Governor Brian Kemp. They have been targeted, Coca-Cola, Delta, Home Depot, and others. Yesterday, Arthur Blank, of course, the owner of the Atlanta Falcons, co-founder of Home Depot, he released his statement. Initially, Coca-Cola and Delta sided with the Georgia Chamber of Commerce, but, well, that wasn't quite good enough when it came to speaking out on voter suppression. Folks have been talking about boycotting Delta and Coca-Cola. Delta released the internal statement essentially praising the bill, saying some stuff was changed. Woo, let's just say it got a little heated on social media. And Delta CEO came out with a new statement. I'll read that in a second. But here is a statement dropped today from the CEO of Coca-Cola. Yeah, I completely agree. Let me, let me be crystal clear and unequivocal. Uh, this legislation is unacceptable. Uh, it is a step backwards, uh, and it does not uh, promote uh, principles we have stood for in Georgia uh, around broad access to voting, around voter convenience, uh, about ensuring it, uh, election uh, integrity. And this is, this is frankly just a step backwards. We've spent many decades uh, promoting uh, within Georgia a better society and a better environment for business, and this is a step backwards. And we're very clear on that, uh, and our position remains the same. Uh, this legislation uh, is wrong uh, and needs to be remedied, and we will continue to advocate for it, uh, both in private uh, and now uh, even more clearly in public. That was, clear now, James, but that was the CEO of Coca-Cola uh, speaking on CNBC. This was after a group of black executives, corporate leaders, the Black Economic Alliance, released their statement uh, also calling for these corporations uh, to uh, change their – these corporations to do more to fight voter suppression. Here is the statement released by the CEO of Delta. Pull it up, please. Uh, this Just two weeks ago, we honored civil rights icon Ambassador Andrew Young by naming a building on our campus in his honor and establishing a permanent exhibit to his lifelong work in the lobby. The building was chosen because it is the first place most new Delta employees visit when they come to work for us, and we wanted them to see on their first day just how closely our mission of connecting the world intertwines with the work of heroes like Ambassador Young, a former Delta board member whose steady hand helped save our airline in the dark years following 9-11. Whoa. For all the pride we take in the achievements of Ambassador Young and other civil rights heroes, many of them from our hometown of Atlanta, we know that much work remains to be done to truly establish a just and equitable society. Last week, the Georgia legislature passed a sweeping voting reform act that could make it harder for many Georgians, particularly those in our black and brown communities, to exercise their right to vote. Since the bill's inception, Delta joined other major Atlanta corporations to work closely with elected officials from both parties to try and remove some of the most egregious measures from the bill. We had some success in eliminating the most oppressive tactics that some had proposed. However, I need to make it crystal clear that the final bill is unacceptable and does not match Delta's values. The right to vote is sacred. It is fundamental to our democracy, and those rights not only need to be protected, but easily facilitated in a safe and secure manner. In this room by myself. After having time to now fully understand all that is in the bill, coupled with discussions 
with leaders and employees in the black community. It is evident that the bill includes provisions that will make it harder for many unrepresented voters, particularly black voters, to exercise their constitutional right to elect the representatives. That is wrong. The entire rationale for this bill was based on a lie that there was widespread voter fraud in Georgia in the 2020 election. This is simply not true. Unfortunately, that excuse is being used in states across the nation that are attempting to pass similar similar legislation to restrict voting rights. So there's much more work ahead and many more opportunities to have an impact. I want the entire Delta family to know that we stand together in our commitment to protect and facilitate your precious right to vote. That's why we invested heavily in our get out the vote efforts last year. And we can all be proud of Delta's contribution to the historic voter turnout in 2020. In the weeks and months ahead, we'll be working close. We'll be working with leaders across the political spectrum in states nationwide in this effort. We're also closely monitoring legislation in Congress, named after the late Atlanta civil rights hero and Delta friend John Lewis, <laughs> that will expand voting rights nationwide and working with representatives and senators to represent our communities. <laughs> I know this result in Georgia has caused frustration, anger, and pain for many members of our Delta family. I commit to you that we, at the, to, to commit to you that as we move forward, Delta will continue to do everything in our power to hear and protect your voice and your rights, both in Georgia and nationwide. Thank you for all you do for your communities, your loved ones, and for, and for our Delta family every single day. And folks, that is, of course, the CEO, Ed Bastian uh, of Delta. Joining us right now uh, is Francis Johnson, the board chair for New Georgia Project. Uh, Francis, glad to have you. So, Francis, um, let me just, just be clear here. I appreciate that statement from, um, from the Delta CEO. I appreciate the words for the Coca-Cola CEO. I appreciate black executives, Ken Chenault and, uh, and the others for signing that letter. I saw the Executive Leadership Council release their own statement. Well, let's be real clear, Francis. We're only here discussing their statements because of the pressure groups like yours and Black Voters Matter and others put on them to stand up and speak out. The reality is this. Had these companies, had that statement been released when the House and the Senate was considering the bill, had that statement from Coca-Cola been released before the governor signed it into law, we may not be talking about this after the fact, which is why we need companies and black executives to show up in the middle of the fight and not <laughs> after the fight is over. You're absolutely right. You know, after a summer of Black Lives Matter protest and uh, the platitudes offered by these corporations about their support for uh, black and brown people uh, and what we're going through, uh, and, and after watching uh, the 2020 election unfold as it did, the insurrection at the United States Capitol, and the voter suppression across the state, we expect that the corporate 
citizens who called Georgia home uh, to do what was right. Uh, and instead, uh, they were duly mouthed. Uh, they were trying to hedge bets. And ultimately, uh, they were on the wrong side of this. And you're right, it has been nothing but the pressure uh, from consumers, black consumers and others around the country and around the world that has told Delta, uh, you have to do better. Consider the impact of Delta uh, on uh, the state of Georgia, 33,000 employees, just Delta, uh, $62 billion in economic impact, $53 billion of that is attributable to Delta. If they had spoken up earlier, we may not be facing the greatest retrogression voter suppression act since Jim Crow. This is Jim Crow's Resurrection Act, and Delta uh, has itself to blame. And, 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 and again, I need people to understand um, I'm not saying we don't appreciate it, but the point is, we saw this coming. I mean, for the last three months, I have been on this show saying, y'all, here it comes. Y'all. Ossoff, Warnock won, Biden and Harris won. Oh, I said, y'all, they gonna change the law. It's coming. The, the election night. Republicans are like, oh, hell no. We, oh, no. we changing this. And so for all these folks, they act like, like all of a sudden, you shot? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, when you uh, just go one step deeper in analysis and you're spot on and you called it just like just like you're supposed to, you call the spade a spade. Uh, but when you consider uh, Delta's previous action on, uh, on RIFRA, for, for example, uh, they came out and stood with civil rights folks to oppose legislation. Uh, that would uh, would target the LGBTQ community, and the state of Georgia slapped uh, a reinstatement of the four percent gas tax on them, which cost them sixty million dollars for their statement. Uh, Georgia's gas tax is uh, second highest in the nation, behind Illinois. Of course, that's home to the, the second largest airport, second busiest airport uh, in the nation, behind Huntsville. So let's not uh, mince words. This is about money. And at some point, somebody at Delta made the calculated decision that, uh, that the risk of offending the Republicans who controlled this was far greater than the blowback they would get from black and brown people and people of goodwill who would see this as cowardice. But they, they misjudged, and they have hell to pay for it. Uh, they're late. We appreciate it. Now what they need to do is turn their influence and take their seats at the table to make sure the Senate moves past the filibuster if it has to, to enact uh, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act, but not only that, to call upon uh, the state of Georgia to do something about uh, this this terrible legacy that it has given itself in the modern era as the state that resurrected Jim Crow. And and this is uh, a perfect example. This is a tweet that Cliff Albright, co-founder of Black Voters Matter, sent out today. To my computer, please. This is why Black Voters Matter and Organized Texas were at the AT&T building in Dallas on Monday. AT&T isn't just silent on voter suppression. AT&T is complicit on voter suppression. And this is what he was referring to. Uh, and this, was, this tweet by Antonio Arellano. AT&T has donated $574,000, $574,500 to Abbott Patrick, Governor Greg Abbott, and Dan, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, and the sponsors of Texas voter suppression bills since 2018. AT&T donated $150,000 to Patrick, who was so enthusiastic about Trump's false claims of voter fraud 
and he offered a $1 million reward for evidence. And so what this is saying is, okay, uh, folks out there, if you watch it, if you're watching Direct TV, if you're sitting here watching HBO Max, if you're watching any of these networks, if you've got AT&T phone service, if you're using anything with AT&T, AT&T's money is going to Republicans who believe in voter suppression. What you and Black Voters Matter and others are saying is, tell the likes AT&T and other companies, withhold your dollars and say, if y'all seek to pass voter suppression bills, you are not going to get any support from AT&T. We're going to oppose it, and we're going to fund the people running against you. Is that what you and others are saying? Oh, that's exactly what we're saying. Not only is our vote our voice, but uh, the money that we spend uh, and where we decide to spend it is also a part of that, that voice as well. And, and, and honestly, what we needed to do was have listened to the folks who turned this election in the first place. It was young voters. It was new voters the voters of our future who will say to these companies, put your money where your mouth is um, long before the election and this General Assembly session. And so not only does Coke have to deal with this, uh, you've got other companies like Aflac and uh, Home Depot, and the list goes on and on, companies that are going to have to address their corporate cowardice. And you said something a few shows ago that just stuck with me. And folks need to realize how all of these pieces are connected. Not only did the, did the Republicans signal that they will take over local elections, um, mm -hmm. but they've already signaled that they will take over even the Atlanta airport. And that came up last legislative session. Yep. And so there, there are lots of things that are moving behind the scenes. And make no mistake about it, this was a calculated decision on the part of these corporations to be silent at first. And now they're pivoting. Uh, the pivot is late. But they need to take their influence and now make sure that the United States Senate uh, chooses freedom over the filibuster that enacts the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Advancement Act and helps Georgia to move past this. If the Senate did its job, they would have to worry about the implementation of this uh, of this Jim Crow Resurrection Act here in Georgia. Francis Johnson, New Georgia Project. We surely appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Oh, thank you, brother. Uh, let's go to my panel here. Um, Robert, you're there uh, in Georgia. This is pressure. Let's just be real clear. If it was not for the external pressure, you would not have any of these statements coming out. Well, you're 100% correct. And actually, myself and Francis Johnson and Reverend Jackson and uh, C.K. Hoffler and uh, State Representative D. Dawkins Haber had a press conference earlier today demanding that uh, our corporate, uh, the people who did the performative justice last year, the people who had the uh, signs and the billboards saying we stand with you, uh, that racism is wrong, that you put your money where your mouth is and really pressure the legislature. We saw when Arizona would not uh, pass a king holiday, they moved the Super Bowl. When North Carolina passed a uh, transgender bathroom bill, uh, they moved the All-Star game out of that state. Uh, if you shut down movie production in this state, and the people who can do that are the actors who are in those movies. I think more movies have been made in Georgia in the last two years than anywhere else in the country. Uh, if you shut down that production, I guarantee they'll have this law off the books by Friday. If, the, when the, if opening night uh, the Braves don't take the field because the black players refuse to play, I guarantee they'll get this issue fixed. You have to understand that the finances are what run things in this state and in all states. And as much as those Republicans may love racism and segregation, the one thing they enjoy more than that is money. And the people who control that are going to be the, uh, going to be the corporations, going to be the movie studios, going to be the uh, the record uh, labels, and so on and so forth. So you shut those things down and quick, fast, in a hurry, we'll get rid of these Jim Crow laws. 
Monique, uh, this is a lesson that people need to understand. Inside needs outside, outside needs inside. There were people on the inside of Delta and Coca-Cola and these other companies who were saying, let's say something, let's speak up. The companies, mm, they hedging. And we saw these very lukewarm statements. But then when the outside pressure kept getting heated up and then you start seeing hashtag boycott Delta, boycott Coca-Cola, and then you saw that thing building and building and building, then some folks were, oh, we might want to go ahead and say something that's a little bit more forceful. That, that's really, I, I, I talked to people who were involved in the negotiations, in the discussions with the Delta CEO and the Coca-Cola CEO. And that's exactly what happened. They were not listening initially, but then they started listening in the last 48 hours. Right, and they already have the crisis manager on deck. You know, because that, that statement that you read, that was written by a crisis manager. That wasn't written <laughs> by any random executive. That wasn't written by, by, the, by the blanket PR department. They had people standing by basically saying, okay, let's, let's shoot craps for a minute and see how far on the outskirts, on the edges of this situation we can stay. Let's put our toe in the water. And then here comes Black Lives Matter and here comes all of the other organizations that do what they do so well uh, and put them in the position where they had to do the, in case of emergency, break glass. And I'm sure it was already drafted because it was very specific and it was written very well and it said everything that they should have said the first time. So we have the power. I'm going to keep saying it this year until the people way, way, way in the back hear me. We have the power. I agree with Robert. Yes, the film studios. Yes, the record labels. Yes, yes, yes. But it's we. It's the we that don't own the studios, but that buy the music. The we that don't own, but go to the movie, that stream the services. It's our collective power that when it is utilized properly, makes for change. The ballot box is obviously one place where we make that change, but we can wield power all across the stratum, and I'm glad to see that that's what's happening. Uh, Scott? Well, got it, Monique. Robert, got it. Roland, got it. Now what? Right? Because these statements and these change of hearts are really interesting, as you say, appreciated, right? But how far are they willing to go? The consumerism of black people in this country is tremendous. We spend more than we save, right, on many of those companies. So what is the Democratic Party or those companies willing to do, given how much we invest in them, whether it's politics or whether it's economics or business, you name it, right? That power we have, we've got to continue to move forward with it. Is Arthur Blank, who owns the Atlanta Braves, willing to move the team? Uh, Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta Falcons. Uh, Atlanta Falcons. Is, 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 is Delta or Coca-Cola willing to move their employees? Are they willing to move their headquarters? I mean, listen, reality is not rhetoric. I like the rhetoric, but it's got to match reality. And until we continue to press and make them do what we want them to do, including the White House, if you will, Where's the White House on this? Vote 51 to 50 and pass that legislation and get rid of the filibuster and be done with it. Why are we as black people asking the White House and trying to force the White House to do something about voter rights when all we did was vote our rights to them? 
So there's a lot more work to be done here. And I'm not, I, I, I don't understand why we got to have a rhetoric or negotiate something like this when it's really clear the fate of the Democratic Party and black people all around this country are at stake. Because it's not just about the Democratic Party here. These are corporations. These are corporations who also want Republicans. Oh, no, 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 it's not, but it's not the same. It's, it's not the same because these are Republicans. It's not the same, Scott, because these are corporations. Scott, these, Scott, these are corporations. Scott, these are, Scott I'm, I'm aware, of, I understand that. These are corporations that also have other business interests where they want Republican votes. For instance, there's a gaming bill going on in Georgia where they, they don't have enough Republican votes because the, the white evangelicals uh, don't support it, so therefore they need those black votes. This is where black voters matters or others have said, okay, black legislators, y'all make it clear. We ain't voting on that bill unless y'all get rid of the voter suppression bill. We will let your gaming bill die as a result. Right. I like the, that. The, 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 next, I like step, that the next step has to be, uh, yes, how are you going to repeal it? And so, yes, what these corporations are going to have to do, we saw it uh, with the transgender bathroom bill in North Carolina. When corporations say we're going to stop doing movies, we're not going to have conferences, we're going to uh, hold back on job announcements uh, and transferring folks to North Carolina unless you get rid of the bill, they change the bill. That's what this boy has to happen. So are we boycotting Georgia? No, 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 wait, see, no, 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 see, hold up, no, 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 see right there. I've said the last couple of days that folks who are talking about boycotting need to, first of all, listen to the folks in Georgia first uh, on this very issue. Why is that? Because they're the ones who know it best. That's one. Two, uh, there has to be a plan of action when it comes to do so. This is what Stacey Abrams tweeted, uh, folks, uh, literally about um, 30 minutes ago. Guys, go to my computer, please. This, uh, this is, um, I'm going to go to it and read it in a second, because what she did was she specifically spoke about uh, this issue uh, of boycott because folks have been uh, talking about it. They've been talking about it. And this, uh, I'm just going to read it. Don't worry about it. She said, as a black person, a southerner, and an American, I respect and defend the right to boycott. But the communities most targeted by SB202 would be most hurt by a boycott of Georgia. Bring your business to Georgia, and if you're already here, stay in fight, stay in vote. Uh, hashtag G-A-P-O-L. Now, others have a different... Let me finish. Others have, a mm-hmm. others have a different point of view. Yeah. What I'm saying is, for me, I don't live in Georgia. I'm going to take my cues from the people who are on the ground fighting as to, as to relates to what the next tactic is to get the law uh, dismissed. Well, well, you got to well, cut well, off the well, money. Call it what well, you well, want. Well, you got to cut off the money, though. Robert? I think the issue is that this boycott isn't coming from leadership. This boycott isn't coming from elected officials. Uh, the uh, boycott isn't coming from the boule. This boycott is coming from the streets. These are the people who have been active, who have been marching for George mm-hmm. Floyd, who have been marching for Trayvon mm-hmm. Martin, who have been marching for Rashad Brooks, who have been marching for Ahmaud Arbery. And when they see these things happen and understand that we're being turned back into uh, back towards Jim Crow, despite what they did to get into those streets in November and in January, uh, there's nobody who can take these dogs off. So the only <laughs> thing that's going to fix this is the legislature getting in there and fixing it. These corporations, there's no reason we should be begging these people uh, to do the right thing. How much sugar water can Coca-Cola sell if black folks ain't drinking it? Uh, how many hammers can these people sell if black folks ain't hammering? But, but here's oh. where, but here's where, here's where, here's where I will, here's where I will disagree. Where I would disagree on, on the, uh, where I disagree there, 
uh, on, on, and I, I certainly understand your sentiment, the people who are saying we need to boycott. But the point that I continue to make, Monique, is if anybody has taken the time to study boycotts, it's easy to call for one. <laughs> it's harder to plan for one. And what I'm saying, and I'm not against a boycott, what I am against are folks saying, boycott, no plan. Boycott, no mobilization. What? Boycott, that's the problem. And so if you're going to boycott, you literally have to plan it as opposed to just sort of hope it happens. I'm going to use a Colin Kaepernick example. When Colin Kaepernick was not re-signed, folks were like, we're going to boycott the NFL. I was talking to people and other groups saying, I'm just curious, y'all, who's organizing this boycott? Who's informing the people? Like, like, what's the strategy here? They were like, well, it's sort of bubbling up. And I said, I'm sorry, y'all. I ain't never seen anything bubble up unless it was planned and organized. That's my only point here, Monique. If folks want to say boycott, you better plan and organize one, not just tweet it and put it on Instagram and Facebook. Well, I I agree with you. I just would add an additional point that I had with the NFL boycott, and I for sure would have with any proposed uh, Delta or Coca-Cola boycott, boycott. Please do not do things that hurt us and put the squeeze on us more than they put the squeeze on the corporations. Please do not do things that are going to land our people without jobs. Check the numbers on who's who's hired um, and, and employed gainfully in Atlanta due to um, their, their hub being there. Check the numbers on Coca-Cola and find ways, uh, smart ways, to impress upon these corporations the need for action absent things that ultimately because it's not i understand that with a boycott there has to be suffering and we've always had to in doing them go without things uh that we regularly enjoy but what i do not want to see at all is for people to end up without jobs uh and with employment shrinkage because of something when there are other ways to get the same thing done. Got it. Well, Marola, real quick, real quick. We don't have to suffer when it comes to air travel. There are choices out there. We don't have to suffer I was talking about employees. There are choices out there. Employees, Employees. Employees. The alternative is companies I'm talking about the those services and goods have employees too. So nobody's asking anybody to suffer. That's just two examples, right? So listen, either the companies are committed or they're not. And I'm not, not interested in what they write and say. What are they prepared to do? And you're right. We should be organized. I agree with you, Roland. It's hard not to agree with that. But the reality is there's no suffering we're asking people to do because they're alternatives. And if you can get people to think about alternatives, right, then the money goes elsewhere. You don't take the money away. It goes elsewhere. Sit here and go here, okay? So 
if you're going to act to participate in a boycott, you do have to have a plan of action. So, for instance, what are you saying to people? First and foremost, are you asking people right now uh, to drop their sky miles? Are you asking people not to book uh, air, uh, uh, tickets on Delta? Are you asking people to, in, Are you first of all, are you, or are you sending the information out saying, here are the Delta hubs in America. We need people to send picket lines to those particular hubs to be able to protest. First of all, who are those people? Who are the organizations? Who's going to get them there? What time are you, pro- uh, what time are you going to be uh, picketing? How are you sustaining that? What I'm saying is you can, you can just throw it out there. You still have to organize the boycott. Then the question is, hold up, hold up. Then the question is, are we hitting Delta on Monday, Coke on Tuesday, Home Depot on Wednesday, Affleck on Thursday, UPS on Friday? See, again, I'm just laying out strategy here. I'm not laying out boycott. You just laid it out. No. You just no. laid it out. No. What I threw out there, no, what I threw out there was suggested was, here's the deal, Scott. If you call for a boycott and say, show up at Affleck on Wednesday and four people show up, that's failure. Somebody still has to organize the people to show up. You work out all that. See, here we go. Right, right there, right there is why they fail. Right there. Because folks, folks want to say somebody else should do it. All I'm saying is to the people who are throwing out their boycott, you better plan it. You better plan it. And hell, hell, Robert, you sitting there working with Rainbow Bush. Reverend Jackson knows this. The success of Operation Breadbasket was successful because there was a clearly defined strategy to get results. Read Martin Depp's book, Operation Breadbasket, 1966-1971. It was the reason it was successful is because it wasn't just poof, there it is. I gotta go to a break. Go ahead, final final comment, go. Real quick, two things. One, of course that plan is underway. We're in the early stages. This bill got passed uh, last week, but you make sure people understand that this is the fight that we're going to get into. Number two, there's always been this tension in Atlanta between the establishment, between the Daddy Kings and the Dobbs of the world, and the young revolutionaries, the uh, the Atlanta student movement. The reason much, much of what Dr. King did was in Albany and, uh, and Montgomery and Birmingham was because of the establishment of the black community that wanted to run things in Atlanta. So there's always going to be this tension between the people who have the financial interests and the people who have the energy and the streets. Right now, the energy in the streets is what's moving the ball forward. That's that third rail, and we have to harness it. And actually, that's also not fully true. Because guess what? The, what has actually been moving the ball is that Fair Fight, New Georgia Project, Black Voter Matters, and others, it has still been planning. It just ain't happening just because. <laughs> All I'm saying is, it still has to be planned. And I've been talking to these different people, and you know what leaders have been saying? Leaders who are there on the streets, leaders who have been on the ground, they're saying, we're not going to do stuff ad hoc. We're actually going to do things very methodical way because they're saying is, when you get to boycott, again, using the model of Operation Breadbasket, which Reverend Jackson knows very well, boycott was the last piece. Step. It was the last step. It wasn't the first one. Got to go to a break. We come back. We'll discuss the Derek Chauvin case, uh, the trial today uh, that took place uh, right here in Roller Martin. We'll be back in a moment. America is starting to breathe again. A decent man as president, a plan to protect us. Brazil's almost gone. 
testimony and surveillance video was shown today in the Derek Chauvin uh, murder trial in Minneapolis. It was provided the first witness to report actions inside Cup Foods for his death. It was inside the store, so it's more casually walking into Cup Foods. Roll it, please. Uh, and talking with customers and employees. We also heard from the store clerk and others who witnessed the murder. Guys, you can roll the video. We're going to talk over it. Um, Monique, I want to start with you. Uh, you've been following the trial. Just your assessment of what happened today. Uh, the evidence was, was devastating. Uh, the witness testimony was certainly painful uh, to listen to. I found myself, I've been in trials of my own, where I found myself praying for my witnesses, uh, that we all would end up making it through, and that nobody would collapse on the stand, and that I would keep it together and do my job uh, at the table. And I found myself doing that today, even though I'm not there not in the trial. Uh, even one of the tweets that I tweeted today was help him Holy Ghost because when we saw uh, the prosecution's witnesses time after time be racked with guilt and then ultimately just collapse in tears watching the, the evidence uh, be put before the jury, I can only imagine what the jury's reaction is to these things. But the other thing that I would say is that the prosecution is doing an almost seamless job on presentation of evidence and witnesses and strategy. They pulled the sting today. I'm sure Scott will explain after I, I'm sorry, I have to cut out early today what, what that means. But when you know that there's bad evidence that's going to come at some point and you want to control that narrative and present that evidence yourself before anybody else gets a chance to, they started yesterday with, with what really matters, the relevant evidence about how George Floyd did not need to die. They backed up today so they went in reverse chronology and explained what happened before he ended up on the ground outside. And then they ended, you know, with, with the with the MPD technician coming and all of that body cam footage coming in. And all I was thinking in my head the whole time I was watching that footage is they ought to rot in hell, they ought to rot in hell, they ought to rot in hell. I mean, convictions really are not good enough for what we saw today. Scott, your assessment. Yeah, uh, I agree with Monique. Uh, the, 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 the sting they pulled out today when Monique was talking about was the store clerk that actually called the police. I actually didn't know there were that many counterfeit bills coming through that community. I mean, it's like this was the second one. But uh, he said he thought that uh, uh, George Floyd was high, although he could have a conversation with him. And uh, he called the police because he had this counterfeit bill. Turns out that George Floyd did have drugs in his system, but that's part of the defense. Prosecution put that witness on today to take the sting out of that, to add credibility to their case, to the jury saying, this jury, I'm going to give you all the facts, not just some of the facts. I'm not going to hide anything from you. So when you hear this from the defense, you will have heard it already. But the emotional testimony, and it's early, is expected. But, but, but what you got today, the power of the testimony was reflected in how the video manifested emotionally with all of these people who observed this, their helplessness for one, but more importantly, that, that they watched the life force being taken away from this black man under the knee of the defendant and the police. And you don't have many videos like that. I've told you before, Roland, the power of this video and why you have protests all over the world was the slowly left 
one shot. It wasn't a fight. It wasn't him running and getting shot in the back. No, this nine minutes was just uh, grueling and awful, and you heard a lot of that on the stand. It's an excellent start for the prosecution, but know the experts are coming, and the cause of death is going to be hotly, hotly debated and litigated, and that's really going to be the turnkey or the most important part of this case. Who are the experts, and who does the jury believe? Robert, was it the drugs and fentanyl and hypertension that killed him, or is it the but for the police that the, the drugs and the health issues don't really matter because but for the police triggering those ramifications of his health issue, is that what killed him? But for the police. Look for that phraseology as we carry on this trial. Robert? You know, there's an odd, uh, odd thing that the defense is doing is a, uh, a kind of divergent, bifurcated defense. Uh, one is this idea of the buck defense, where George Floyd was a six foot five, uh, monstrous, towering individual, uh, athlete, yeah. uh, hopping yeah. up on drugs, a super soldier, flipping over cars, juggling <laughs> buildings, all that. And so, of course, he took a small five foot nine, very weak officer. We had to hold him down. We had to put our knee on his neck. There was no other way for us to detain him. The buck defense. I've been using it since slavery uh, to talk about black men. But then they have a second defense, which is what Scott was just mentioning, which is kind of an eggshell defense, saying that George Floyd was so sick, so weak, so decrepit, so riddled with drugs, that he would have died at that exact same place and at that exact same time with no intervention from the officers. Uh uh, He was a person in such poor physical condition, such poor health, that there was nothing that the officer did to contribute to his death, that it was simply uh, the forces of nature and the officer just happened to be there at that time. So they're arguing in two different directions at the same time. So what you saw the prosecution do today is, as Scott and Monique, they try to take the sting out of that second defense, the sting out of that idea of him uh, simply being so weak and decrepit and uh, riddled with drugs and alcohol that he was going to just heal over and die, taking a culpability away from the officer. I think the next thing they will have to do is attack that buck defense and the idea that he somehow posed a threat because uh, uh, it's a nonsense argument. And the fact that in America, you can have this on video, have a half dozen or more witnesses or witness something, talk about this for a year, and still we're on pins and needles as to if there will be a conviction. Shows you just how broken the criminal justice system is. God forbid you get killed by the police and don't have a film crew there with you to chronicle what happened. God forbid you uh, get killed by the police. You don't have an international movement that uh, sparks protests or Sydney, Australia, and Shanghai, China, and everywhere else around the world because if you're just a regular individual who gets killed by the police, if, if these officers get, can't get convicted for this, I'm not sure what you would have to do to get convicted for killing a black man in America. Folks, I'm going to play some of the testimony that took place today uh, in the Derek Chauvin murder trial. I'm going to pause here for a moment. The record should reflect 829.55. You saw you standing there with your hands on your head for a while, correct? Correct. What was going through your mind during that time period? Uh, disbelief. And guilt. Why guilt? Um, if I would have just not taken the bill, it could have been avoided. We also saw another individual get pushed by an officer, correct? Correct. What did you do after that happened? Um, I was just trying to calm him down, tell him to stand back. Okay, so that takes us to the end of Exhibit 33. You were going back into the store. Correct. And so then did you just continue to work your shift? Correct. And 
this is difficult. Can you just explain sort of what you're feeling in this moment? testimony for one thing uh they took a break right after that okay so the jury is going to be just as emotional as he is he lost his mother george Floyd didn't have a mother and this witness and the other witnesses keep talking about how helpless they felt and, it, and it's true when the police are there and you got the guy down and you had a paramedic there they couldn't help but they could see the life force leaving his body and so his testimony is very powerful this case has a lot of different aspects to it. It's going to take like up to 30 days, so this is just one. The prosecutors have to keep that emotional level there for the next 20 or 30 days. We'll see. The real issue, though, with this witness is, could he finish and tell his story? The video tells part of it. Uh, but the video also shows with the police and this gentleman here is they just, they just know discretion. They didn't care. And they didn't know how to deal with someone in mental or drug crisis, which is the biggest problem with the police force. There's just nothing there other than arrest and take them. They should have put him in the car and, despite his protest, just took him to the hospital. But they didn't care about it. So, good testimony for the prosecution. But he told his story. And can that level of emotional connection with the jury, can they maintain it on a daily basis or weekly basis or through the end of the trial? They're going to try, no matter what, to do just that. Well, you know, it looks good for the prosecution currently, but I've learned not to judge cases at halftime, uh, particularly yeah, in the first exactly. quarter. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. We're not, we're not saying guilt or innocence. I'm just simply saying, what is it looking like from your perspective? How does that play to a jury right now? Not whether he's going to be guilty. It, it, it plays well to a jury right now, but also there are portions of that that I can see the defense will be using in their, uh, uh, in their uh, direct presentment of, of the facts. They will argue that they uh, offered, they tried to easily put Mr. Floyd in the back seat of the car, that he resisted, that he pushed back, that they were simply trying to restrain him at the time, uh, that they called for paramedics, that they followed the uh, the protocols as were taught to them as required by the department, and that despite the death being tragic, that there was no criminality involved, that if anything, there was recklessness involved. I think that's what, what will be their argument. And one of the issues that the prosecution is going to have to establish is the prong of intent, because people... Uh, people keep uh, asking for a first-degree murder uh, uh, charge or conviction in this case. Well, the prosecution has to prove that there was an intent on the part of Officer Chauvin to kill Mr. Floyd, and they haven't presented evidence that would indicate that. Uh, and the defense is going to argue that this was just all a horrible accident because of Mr. Floyd's drug addiction, uh, because of Mr. Floyd's alcohol consumption, because of Mr. Floyd's physical condition, uh, and that it's not their fault because he resisted. That's going to be their defense. So I, I'm going to be looking for the prosecution pushing forward and pushing evidence that will show what the intent was and how they can establish that uh, in this case. So the, those are things I'm looking out for. All right, folks. Uh, let's yeah, you know, Roland, if I may, real quick, one other thing. The police are going to always argue one way, shape, or form. I didn't go there to kill George Floyd. I went there to arrest him. He died as a result of him, him stealing and resisting 
but I didn't kill him. In the end, that's kind of going to be what the defense is going to be in a big way. And with the expert, they're going to argue that in closing. It's going to be a tough case to uh, get a conviction here. All right, folks, let's go to Texas, where former, where former Williamson County, Texas Sheriff's Deputy James Johnson is asking Candace. We're both charged with second-degree manslaughter on Monday, according to Travis County District Attorney Jose Garza. They were booked into a Travis County jail on Tuesday and released on a $150,000 bond each within an hour. The two former Texas Sheriff's deputies were arrested Tuesday on manslaughter charges from the 2019 death of a man whom they shot with stun guns after a police chase that was filmed by real-time police on the TV series Live PD. The deputies chased Javier Ambler for 22 minutes after trying to pull him over for allegedly failing to dim his headlights to oncoming traffic. Ambler, a former postal worker, died after deputies repeatedly used stun guns on him, despite his pleas that he was sick and couldn't breathe. The stop in suburban Austin was caught on camera by Live PD, which was canceled by the A&E Network in June. This was uh, shocking to lots of people. We're going to keep showing this video. This was shocking to lots of people, uh, Robert, because uh, the fact that the people uh, that Live PD uh, held onto and later destroyed uh, the tape. This is body camera footage right here. Um, again, so this is one of those things where people often will say, "Hey, don't use, uh, don't use uh, stun guns, things like that." But you heard him actually say, Robert, in the video, "I have congestive heart failure." And he's yelling it. Mm-hmm. You're, you're absolutely right. I, I think part of what we have to uh, understand when we start talking about less than lethal weapons, things such as tasers, things such as uh, beanbags, rubber bullets, officers often are far more liberal in the use of those than they would be with deadly weapons because they consider them to be less than lethal or they consider them to be uh, uh, a lesser level of, uh, of accountability when discharging them. We saw the two students in um, in Atlanta who were held uh, held up in a similar way. We've seen, we've seen officers use tasers in a uh, non-life-threatening situation even though they're only supposed to be deployed in those such, uh, such situations. So it's going to be a, a question of exactly what evidence they can bring to bear uh, in order to show that there was extreme recklessness at least uh, in, uh, in the uh, actions of the officers and not simply within the line of duty. But we have to retrain the way that officers interact with the communities and to see the humanity of the people they are arresting. They, if you listen to this radio chatter, if you get discovery packets, I mean, Scott, get uh, from time to time in these cases, the way that they talk about individuals is the way you will talk about an animal, the way you will talk about yep. something that needs to be contained, something in a zoo, yep. not a fellow human being. And as long as you consider them that way, that is how you tase a man with congestive heart failure to death. That is how you put your knee on somebody's neck because you have dehumanized them in your mind to the point that you really believe you're that thin blue line between civilization and chaos and anything to do with pursuit of that is necessary. Exactly. Exactly. And if you feel that way and you're a police officer, then you're not going to believe me if you're trying to arrest me and I'm telling you I got congestive heart failure or that I can't breathe. That's why. They don't believe them because they don't think they're human and they just think they're the scum of the earth and let's just put them in jail with the rest of the mopes and dogs and perps and whatever other short name they use for people that they arrest. These are human beings. And because they made a mistake or even committed a crime or are bad actors, they're still human beings, and your job is to transport them and arrest them. Your job is not to kill them, period. And it never stops being about that. All right, folks. Hold tight one second. Got to go to a quick break. When we come back, our tech talk and digital footprint. 
really important. A lot of people really ignore how much stuff they put on social media. You realize your whole life is out there? Even your cell phone number, your home address, photos, where you live. We'll talk about that next on Roller Martin. All right, folks, technical difficulty right there. We'll work on that. Do you know what you're doing? Right, first of all, uh, y'all should be playing the chess talk, but I guess you can't play that. So why can't we play it? That's what you're supposed to play before I start talking. Do you know what your digital footprint says about you? Social media searches are used all the time by schools, the police, employers, and others to determine who they want to want on their team, which they expect, doesn't it? We're chatting with Stephanie Humphrey, author of Don't Let Your Digital Footprint Kick You in the Butt. Stephanie, glad to have you. Um, Good Robert to see Humphrey. you. Absolutely. Hope all is well with you. Um, here's what's interesting. We just we just dealt with Alexi McCann uh, mm-hmm. losing her job as the editor-in-chief of TiVo due to some comments posted on social media when she was 17 years old. Then, the social media person for Teen Vogue, who was one of the voices saying she should be fired, they, re- they reveal her N-word usage, no word of whether Teen Vogue has let her go. Uh, we've seen other examples of that, things that pro athletes have said when they were in high school as well. But not just that, the amount of information, I think people would be completely overwhelmed, the amount of information that's literally available that people can actually do go to some of these search engines or some of these services you pay for, and it literally will show you not just Robert or Scott, but but their children, their relatives, their their, their addresses and phone numbers, other people who are connected to you. That's how that's how crazy this is. It is. It, it goes way deeper. And thank you so much for having me, Roland. Um, it goes way deeper than any of us ever imagined. When you just think about how many platforms you're attached to that are connected to the internet. And we're not even just talking about Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. We're talking about Twitch and YouTube and Netflix and your Apple Watch and your Fitbit and that Nest thermometer in your home and that Alexa and and everything else that you use that is connected to the internet is establishing a digital footprint for you that is searchable and recoverable. All of that data can be mined in some way. And and not only that, I mean, I don't even think people realize, uh, I mean, just the other day I went to the cleaners and they said, what's your phone number? And I'm sitting there like, and again, no, you, and what happens? And what happens is we just do it naturally. You now go to grocery stores, and in order for you to get the discount, you got to put your phone number in, or you scan your card, which actually has, uh, you know, has your information on there as well. I mean, the, how we have, how we have freely just given. And in fact, it's a trip. Like I say, you know, when people and you go somewhere, they ask for your number. There are other people around, and you just give out your cell phone number. Like it's no big deal. 
Right. Putting it out in the atmosphere. And think about how many people use their phones to pay for stuff. You tap it at Starbucks or you're using Apple Pay and your your you know, your credit card is connected to your phone, is connected to everything else. So it that rabbit hole goes very, very deep and I don't think people know enough about uh, what they are giving away or about how companies are using that data and we don't we're not informed enough on how to protect our privacy in these instances. Um, I'm going to pull Robert and Scott in here. Um, uh, both of y'all are lawyers. I'm sure y'all got something to say about this digital footprint thing. Uh, well, I think my primary question will be what can, what steps can people take in order to start safeguarding those things? You know, what happened to your Black Planet account from 15 years ago? What, where's the information right. from your MySpace page at? Uh, now, all, every app you open says, will you allow access to your data, your phone numbers, your location information? What steps can people take to start breaking, uh, cutting down on the amount of information out there and that's accessible? Right. Well, you first have to make a list. I mean, it, it, it might take a while. It might be way longer than you expect. I actually did this exercise uh, with some students I spoke to recently and asked them to write down everything they've done that is connected to the Internet. And their lists were super long. So think about all of those things. But there is a service in particular called JustDelete.me that will give you instructions on how to go to each of these different sites and ask that your information be deleted. Because that's the thing that people think that just because they're not using the site anymore or just because they deactivated their account, that that particular platform is not still holding on to their data. And they are. You have to actually ask and request that your data be deleted and hope that they actually do it. Now, what's the website again? JustDelete.me. Okay, all right. Uh, Scott? You know, I often hear about the dark Internet, and I have this vision of a collection of hackers who are taking your data, selling it, and then using it, but I don't know they're using it, and I can't really tell whether they're using it. How do I find out whether I've really been compromised, like my Social Security number or my date of birth, uh, that I've been compromised, and I don't even know I've been compromised. How do I fix that? That's a tough question because, yeah, like you mentioned, the dark Internet is called the dark Internet for a reason. It, it, it is meant to be hidden. They use virtual private networks and other things to cloak their identity and, and route traffic through different routers so you can't find it. So it would be really tough for the average person to try to sort of go down that path to see if any of their information is out there. There is another website, though, that I like. It's called Have I Been Owned? Dot com and owned a right, right. Uh, that will let you hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Have I have I been owned? It, it's owned, but they spell owned P W N E D. So, so take the O out of owned and put a P there. Got it. Have I been owned.com. All right, pull it up, y'all. Pull it up. Here we go. There All right, go. yeah, that's it right there. So, you can tell if your if your email address has been in a data breach, you can at least see if any of the sites mm -hmm. that you used have been hacked. Yeah. Uh, hey, hey, Roland, can I ask one more question? I guess. Really I guess. Okay. So so here's the deal. Here's a question I get as a lawyer all the time. I have clients who call me and say, you know, I did something wrong uh, ten years ago, five years ago, or I got arrested and it's on the internet or I said something wrong, how do I get it off the Internet or get it so buried deep in the Internet files that nobody can see it unless they're really digging and really looking hard at it? Can't, is that possible? 
possible? Can that be done? It is possible, actually. I actually helped a friend do this, and uh, I will say to, to start, you're not deleting it. How much so, does that so, cost? So you're <laughs> that was a favor. I don't do this. I don't do that for a living. That was a favor. But I'll tell you what you can do. I'll tell you what you can do. You you're you're not going to get rid of it. So if you're looking at sites, there are a lot of sites out there that that claim to do reputation management and yes. and try to delete stuff off the internet and things like that. At the end of the day, you know that stuff is stored on multiple servers. You know if somebody has a mind to to hack and really dig for your information, they're going to be able to uncover it. What you can do though is just what you said is to put enough of your own content out there that it does start to effectively bury that objectionable content because they've done the study and 99%, a solid 99% of people won't look past the first page of a Google search. So if you can get something off of that first page, you know, down to page five or six, you have effectively buried it for all intents and purposes. It's not going to go away, but you have effectively buried it. So you can combat that old stuff with new, better stuff. So continue to be consistent sure. in the things that you post. Use LinkedIn as a tool. Get your own website started. Whatever that looks like for you, whatever is manageable for you, you have to take control of your digital footprint by putting the things that you want people to know about you out there on the Internet in a consistent basis. One of the things, uh, also, and I explain this to my nieces and nephews all the time, uh, Stephanie, the moment you tweet it, that sucker is out there. That's Even if you it. delete it, there's a, it's, 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 it's there, and it can be found. It can be the mirror. Explain what people we keep hearing is people talk about the mirror. Explain what that is. The, well, there is a site on. There is another website called the Wayback Machine. It is internet-archive.org. That is a website that saves websites. There are more than half a trillion websites on this site. So you can literally go to this website, just Google the Wayback Machine, and you can put in any URL that wasn't private, and it'll show you. There, there you go. Thank you very much. You put in any URL in that little box at the top, and it'll show you at different points in time for years what you had posted at that moment. So, you know, this is just the one quick and dirty, easy way to find your old data. But again, anybody with a little bit of hacking skill um, can, can search and recover pretty much anything on the web. And you see all those little lines on the dates correspond to what blackamericaweb.com looked like at that moment. So what posts were on there, you know, what people were commenting, like all that different stuff. You have a basically an internet record of your online activity saved on this website. And, and Rosa, can I ask one last question? Yeah. Sure. Uh, so my other question would be, recently we've seen people like Kevin Durant get in trouble for burner accounts. Uh, Mitt Romney got caught with a secret troll account at one point in time. Uh, we also uh, continue to see celebrities have their uh, direct messages or their inbox messages leaked to the public. Uh, what can the average person do to stop stop their troll account from being discovered or to stop instant messages or direct messages from being leaked to, uh, uh, publicly? Well, the first thing I'll say before Stephanie does is don't get a damn troll account. That's just first. I'm well, just tell, saying. I'm, I'm, I'm just, no, I'm just, tell, I'm just saying that's first. That's, that's it. That's just first, all right? That's just first. The, sec the second thing is, the second thing is, uh, like, it kills me, Stephanie, when people who I actually know send me a DM. I'm like, your ass got my number. I'm 
I'm like, uh, get a text. I know, I know. It's so bad. I mean, because the thing is, it, it's human nature. It, it's not even a function of the internet necessarily. It's human nature to screenshot stuff and leak stuff. You know, stuff isn't getting leaked because the internet is leaking. Stuff is getting leaked because human beings are leaking it. So you have to know, you know, who you're sending these DMs to and, and who has access to these burner accounts and things like that. And, and you have to understand that because you think that you're not associated with the account does not protect you. Your privacy settings and things like that won't always save you. So you have to understand that anything you put out there, I mean, we got IP addresses that are automatically connected to the things that you do. You know, anything you put out there, you have to understand that that may eventually be surfaced. Okay, so what about, what about, uh, so Stephanie, what about uh, when we hear about these encrypted apps? Um, um, you know, WhatsApp says they have encrypted features. Some folks don't believe it. Uh, go to my computer. A lot of people are really using Signal. Uh, they're using Signal, uh, to be able to send messages back and forth, um, and that, that are encrypted. So, so first of all, explain to people what it actually means when it said that, that, that this app is encrypted from phone to phone. What does that mean? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, end-to-end -end encryption means that... Once you type the message into your yours on the app on your side, you see it as regular text, but the the app itself will encrypt that message, that data, send it to whomever, and it doesn't get unencrypted until they see it on their phone. So you too, allegedly, are the only people that will actually see the content of that app. The, the platform, the people that work at the platform won't see it. They can't hand those records over to any sort of government, um, you know, entity, allegedly. Um, you two are the only two people that are supposed to see that message. So that's what it means. Because if it wasn't end-to-end -end encrypted, you know, it, that message would live on that platform servers. So if they did get subpoenaed by authorities or law enforcement, they could turn that information over to them. Um, if they got hacked, somebody could grab that information that way. But the fact that is it, that it's encrypted means that only you and only the person you send that message to are supposed to be able to see it. However, that still does not solve the problem of human nature. And if that person happens to take a screenshot or if somebody gets a hold of your phone and opens it up and sees that message and takes a picture of your phone, that information can still get out there. So even though on the Signal app, um, you can do disappearing messages. What people have to understand is you can say, people say it's disappearing in five minutes. Um, to your point, the person on the other end can still do a screenshot. Right. And that was the whole thing with Snapchat. You know, when Snapchat first came out, that the whole cachet around Snapchat was like, oh, just five seconds, ten seconds, and that's why everybody was sending nudes and thinking that they were going to get away with sexting, you know, with impunity, basically. But nobody considered the screenshot, and nobody considered the fact that new apps like SnapSave were going to be created that could save the messages before you knew that anybody took a screenshot <laughs> and nobody would ever have to take a screenshot. So I don't doubt that there's something out there now or something being worked on that could save a signal message or a WhatsApp message before you know it's being saved or without your knowledge uh, that it's being saved. So it, 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 it's just a matter of uh, thinking before you hit that send button, honestly.
that, and there's another one out there. Uh, go to my computer real quick. It's called Wire. Uh, it's called Wire. Uh, and they same thing. They are wires just like Signal. Uh, th I think this is from Switzerland. So there's some people who don't. Because Signal is uh, from where? So who, uh, is that a U.S.-based app? Um, that's a good question. I'm not. I'm I'll not look it up. Yeah, because that yeah. I know some people who who were like, hey, uh, I ain't trusting Signal. I'm I'm gonna go to the Swiss app. Uh, they real good about protecting stuff. <laughs> <laughs> seriously, seriously. The first, I'm not I'm not gonna tell you the very rich the very rich person who uh, turned me on the wire. It was like, yeah, I use wire. Uh, and uh, and I was kind of like, okay, all right, like, all right, cool. Listen. If that works for you, but but again, you know you're you're at the mercy of the person you're sending the message to right. as well. So. Right, absolutely, absolutely. Um, anything else uh, uh, about uh, protecting folks uh, before they get their butt kicked uh, by with these digital footprints? <laughs> it really just boils down to being very mindful and intentional about what you do on the internet. You know, we can we can use the internet for a lot of things. Social media can be fun. You can make some money. You can you know change the world you can do a lot of different things but you just have to think about it first you know take those few moments to to ask yourself is this something that needs to be out there is it kind is it going to hurt somebody else is there potential for these words to do damage because they can so the mindfulness um, and the intentionality is really what we all have to get back to well i, I get a kick out of when people uh tell me uh, uh you call me a dumbass you know that's public, and I'm going, yes, it was meant to that be. That was public. the point. <laughs> that was the point. Yes, it was. Uh, and so, yeah, I love it when people sit here and go, uh, uh, you cussed me out. Yes, I did. That was intentional. So, that's, yeah. That's a, that's a part of your brand, though. You know, it, I don't even, I'm like, first of all, the show's so unfiltered. So I'm like, what the hell were y'all thinking? Everybody's not going to be able to get away with that. You know, it was just, it, it was just, it, it, it just sort of crazy. And I just, you know, I tell people all the time uh, that, I mean, look, first of all, you, I remember, I remember I was on the clubhouse chat and they were like, okay, y'all, this conversation's off the record. I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not. I'm like, it's, it's 2,000 people in here. You think somebody <laughs> can't record this? I said, y'all, I can take one, one iPhone, put his voice memo and hold up to the phone. I said, I said, I said, if you dumb enough to sit here and think, this is off the record. And I and I had to literally explain to people what actually off the record is. Off the record is just like a signal. I have to trust the other person who I'm confiding in is not going to reveal it. Mm -hmm. That's all. It's all based upon do I trust. Do I trust Scott going to keep his mouth shut? <laughs> nope. I don't trust Captain. Depending on what we do. That's right. Nope. <laughs> I don't trust Captain. See, right there, I draw a line at Captain. I don't trust Captain. So, you know, that's going to sue you one day. I was just in a meeting with them, and your name came up. And I'm going to tell you, you better watch your mouth on Captain's, because I'm going to tell you, they got their eye on you now. <laughs> you got to turn. The cap would probably need to sue me after that embezzlement y'all had your national office. But we're going to leave that alone. Oh, see, you walked right into that one. That's not the lawsuit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh yeah, that cost y'all about $3 million, huh? The tea has been spilled. That cost y'all about $3 million, huh? No, it didn't. We, we got that resolved. Yeah, okay. Anyway, can we talk about something? That, that money went to the casino. <laughs> yeah, see? See? You opened this can of whoop-ass. 
and I'm just simply <laughs> revealing it. Y'all, show Stephanie's book, please. Uh, Y'all, here's the title of her book. Uh, thank you very much. Don't let your digital footprint kick you in the butt. A lesson in what not to do on the internet to build your personal brand online by Stephanie Humphrey. Stephanie, where can people get it? Amazon. Go to Amazon. Uh, do that. So, folks, uh, I appreciate it. Stephanie, thank you so very much. Thank you for having me. Take care. All right. Have a good one. All right, folks, uh, that is it. Let me thank Robert Scott Monique for joining us today's uh, show. Y'all want to support what we do here on with Martin Unfiltered? Please do so by joining our Read the Funk fan club. Our goal is to get 25 of our fans.